leaders, both policymakers and leaders in business, industry, and higher education, were able to pick up whichever of these advances they wished and do with them whatever they wanted. The decisions they made about what direction American science and technology would take still resound today. They help explain the vast intrusions of politics into modern American science. This will be a national uh, hearing instead of a partisan hearing. Uh, we want to know why Russia has uh, two satellites, why we have none. It explains the scrutiny of science by federal agencies and by Congress. We would still require the engineers to completely put this material together uh, in order to launch the satellite. You say we can do it now. Would you want to say that you would have to discuss our military actualities if we can do it now? Would you want to rephrase your answer? And they help us understand why the bulk of scientists and engineers in the United States do the kind of work that they do. At Cape Canaveral, an Atlas ICBM lifts off the ground in a full-range test, the latest for this mightiest in the United States missile arsenal. Today, of course, we see all this as inexorable. In fact, it was anything but. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office. On January 17, 1961, President Dwight Eisenhower said goodbye. If you ask most Americans to name anything they remember from a presidential farewell address, at best you'll get two answers. George Washington's warning against foreign entanglements and a line from this speech, where Eisenhower poured out his frustration about forces that he said were hijacking the federal purse. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. In this speech, the president lamented the direction the country was headed when it came to spending money for science and technology. Of science, he said, A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists. University research, the president said, had been removed from its lofty perch and was now a tool of politicians and the defense industry. The free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. At the time of this speech, Eisenhower's vice president had just been defeated and a Democrat, John F. Kennedy, was headed into the White House. According to American University space historian Howard McCurdy, that's what this speech was really about. We all thought it was a warning about defense contractors, but in fact, I think what it was was a bitter response to what had happened to the Republicans in the 1960 election. Over the previous months, from 1957 until the election, the Democrats had pounded Eisenhower, particularly when it came to spending on outer space, and, by a narrow margin, driven the Republicans and the Republican agenda from power. But we're starting at the end. Let's jump back. You must have protection from radioactive fallout. Survival offers maximum protection from fallout and falling debris. There's low initial cost and FHA approval. Nothing down in five years to pay. For your family's protection, see a survival shelter today. Keep in mind that science reflects its history. 
So, according to American University's Howard McCurdy, it's important to have a full recollection of the American state of mind during the Eisenhower years. It was a very scary time. In Moscow's trade union house, the father of Francis W. Powers is present for the elaborately staged spy trial of the U-2 pilot. He is the central figure in a courtroom drama whose red-written script is intended to indict the policies of the United States. Public opinion polls suggested that 50% of the American public thought that we'd have a nuclear war. Americans had at first largely embraced the atomic bomb. 85% supported the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And according to Paul Boyer, author of the book By the Bomb's Early Light, that attitude continued to prevail at the opening of the Cold War. In November 1951, the Gallup poll found that 51% of Americans were urging the use of the atomic bomb in Korea. But as the 1950s progressed, a creeping dread began to hijack the American psyche. At the Yucca Flats Proving Grounds in Nevada, a plastic balloon carries aloft the...